Well, again, good morning. Hey, if I've not got the chance to meet you yet, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor, and uh, I'm just loving summer. Can I just say that? I don't know if you are. It's like we were talking about, if you live in Michigan, you should never vacation in summer because this is a big vacation, and the rest of the year you should leave. That's what my plan is for the next year. So hopefully you find a pastor for like September to March-ish. Uh, but I'm really excited. It's been fun because, as Blake said, we have a new baby, so three weeks old, Len and Joy is awesome. Uh, we have nothing figured out yet. We have no idea what we're doing still, uh, but it's been really fun. Like, it's been fun. I hope she's having fun. I'm having fun being her dad. Uh, but it's interesting because one of the things people like you told us was as soon as you have a kid, every routine, every habit, every rhythm just gets flipped upside down. It's totally different than the way you were before, and you're exactly right. It's been totally different than the way we planned it was going to be. But what's funny is I've kept a few routines, a few kind of keystone habits along the way. I said, no matter what, whether we have one kid or 15 kids, not praying that over Lindsay, but just saying, if we have a lot more kids... Uh, I will keep some of these habits. One of those, I started way back in first grade. My keystone habit was to make sure whenever I left for the morning, my glasses were clean. Anyone else with glasses just hate when you get a smudge or you get a little nick or something. Like, I just can't live with that. I don't know if I'm OCD or what, but I just, I cannot tolerate when I leave the house and I've got something over my glasses or when they fog up. Anyone else feel me, right? You just, I, I almost installed when I was a little kid, little windshield wipers, just for moments like that, because I just can't stand them. When my glasses, my view is obstructed. And I didn't know I needed glasses. So I was just going into first grade. My mom said, uh, hey, we met with your teachers and you are basically failing your kindergarten classes, which is that even possible? I had no idea you could even fail kindergarten. I was failing. And, and the teacher said, I think it's because he can't really read what's, what's on the pages. Like he can't really do his homework because he couldn't understand what he was supposed to do. And so after a couple tests and things figured out, it was basically revealed that I really needed glasses as a first grader. So I go to the optometrist, I get my glasses. I'll show you a picture of me pre-glasses, right? So this is me and my brothers like right before. So that's me uh, with the arrow. Very, very cute, right? <laughs> Just making sure, okay? My kid is cute. You don't have to call me cute. That's fine. But I, I got glasses. I get home from the optometrist, and, and immediately my vision just, poof, it's like, there's a tree in our front yard. Who knew, <laughs> right? Or, or she would hand me some of my homework, and I could read the problems perfectly or whatever. Uh, and so finally, I said, you know what? The first thing I want to do, Mom, I want to go for a bike ride. Like, I, I, we lived in this small neighborhood, only a couple houses around and uh, we're at the end of this cul-de-sac, and so I said, I'm going to get on my bike and just go for a ride and just experience the world in a whole new way. And so she said, okay, but John, be careful. Like, you are not used to seeing with good vision. You're used to seeing things blurry, and you figured out a way to make it through all your, your kind of preschool years, basically, uh, without good vision. And so I said, okay, Mom, no problem. So she's standing in our front yard watching me, and I hop down off, off like, the, our driveway was a slope. I kind of tear down the driveway hard right and smack into our neighbor's truck. Just park truck right there. And in my defense, he hit me. Okay, like that's what I'm claiming still. Uh, it was not moving, but he hit me. Okay, like that was not my own fault. But he had this huge monster truck, and I figured out a way basically to clock my head. I fall back in a crumpled heap. My glasses are literally shattered. Like, not like they were the old school, like gold rent. Like, it was destroyed. So, literally, an hour after getting my first pair, we're back at the optometrist and had to get another pair. So, my mom was not pleased. But it's really interesting because if you have glasses or if you have someone in your family with laser eye surgery or whatever, 
or even if you have perfect vision, right? How you see changes literally everything about your life. Even for me as a first grader, not only did it help me run into my neighbor's truck, but it also changed how I did in school. It changed how I interacted with my future siblings. It changed how I interacted with my parents and how I interacted just in the world and in nature. It, it really did change everything. And it's funny because if you look at, let's just say your relationships, let's say your marriage. In your marriage, how you see your marriage, your view of your marriage, your view, uh, let's take it one step further, of what marriage is radically changes based on what the view is, based on what the mental image. Uh, how about your singleness? Your singleness is radically defined by how you view your singleness. Now, the same is true of your parenting, which I'm figuring out, right? How I view my role as a parent radically changes based on what that view is. Uh, let's, I mean, you can name so many categories, right? Your time, how you view your time, how you view your money, your sexuality, your job, but I want to I kind of laser in on a specific area that sometimes we struggle with vision, and it's actually what we're doing right now. It's Sunday morning. I want to talk about how we see Sunday morning, because for me, I grew up in an awesome Christian household. My parents are incredible. Some of you, some of you know my parents, and I got the, the chance to experience faith at a very young age. Uh, baptized as a 13-year-old, like all of those things were happening. But what's interesting is that I, over the years, have really struggled with Sunday morning. Because for me, I grew up in a tradition, in a background that Sunday morning was not optional. It was you go or you're not a part of the family. You can live out in the woods, John. Like it was a very, very, very strict, like we're doing this as part of... Now, as a parent, I, I understand that. I understand the rhythms and you set the culture and tone of your family spiritually, but the indirect messaging I got was that Sunday morning just happened whether you engaged it or not, and it didn't matter. You just did it, and you showed up and you went. And so even today, to this day, I sometimes have a struggle with Sundays. And I got digging into just the last couple of weeks, why is that? Why, why does Sunday mornings have this kind of weird tension to it? And immediately I was reminded of the psalm we're about to read. Immediately, my mind was taken right back. I love short psalms. Like, this is only a couple verses. So if you're like me and you have a short attention span, Psalm 100, the one we're about to dig into, is a perfect psalm for you. It's, so, it's easy to memorize even for someone who has a terrible memory like I do. But Psalm 100 is where we're going. So if you have a Bible, you've got a device, or you want to just watch on the screen, I'm going to invite you to turn there because we're actually going to work through this piece by piece. And so let's read it, and then we'll talk about why it matters. So verse 1, here's what the psalmist writes right away. He says, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. 90s worship songs are going through your mind right now. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It's he who made us. We are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Praise his name. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. This is a landmark psalm for the Israelite people. Psalm 100 is actually part of this unique series. Really, Psalm 93, 94, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99, and 100 are part of this series of Malach Psalms, which Malach is just a fancy Hebrew word for creator or our God reigns. It's really a series. We do sermon series here as a way to kind of package teachings and package certain Bible texts. 
Really, that's what they're doing. They're packaging these together, and they're all about the creator God. It's all about how he reigns, his authority, his kingship over the Israelite people. Now, what's interesting is for Israel, and by the way, every Christian after them, they viewed God as their creator. And if God is not your creator, he is not God. Because if you simply take God as not your creator, you can add him to anything you want, but he's not really the authority. And he doesn't have the ability to define your life either. Because if someone's created you, I, I helped create Lenin. I have a way of forming her future. It's a responsibility, but it's a unique relationship. Now, if one of you decides when she's 16, well, I want to parent Lenin for a little bit. Well, she's probably not going to like that. And she may not like when I do it either, but she's definitely not going to like when you do it because you have no authority. You've not helped create her. And that's God's unique role with his children. And Israel understood that. And the bottom line of Psalm 100 that, that is actually kind of baked into every single verse, it's not just about music. The bottom line is that how you see God changes how you worship him. How you see God how you perceive God, the mental image, the picture, the vision that comes to your mind when you think about God, that determines, that changes, it actually will transform over time how you worship him. And what's interesting is it doesn't matter if you're a Jesus follower or not. Like if you're a skeptic or agnostic or you'd say I'm an atheist today or I don't really believe in God or I don't like church or whatever, you still have a mental image of God whether you like it or not. Now it may not be positive, but you have the opportunity to define your worship and your obedience to God based on your view. Uh, one of the f like fundamental quotes, I remember this from all the way back in college, which was so long ago for me. I'm just kidding. It was not that long ago. But I do remember this as being kind of a, lamp, a thing that stuck out to me in one of my papers. And it was uh, the pastoral writer and theologian A.W. Tozer. This is what he says about this. He writes, that what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. You know what that means? That how you look is not the most important thing about you. You know what that means? That how much money you make every year and whether that's going up or down doesn't define you. doesn't actually mean it's the most important thing about you. How you relate to your spouse or your best friends how those relationships are doing are not the most important thing about you. Tozer says what, what Psalm 100 is saying, if God is your creator, if you see him that way, if you let him define how you view him, it's the most important thing about you. See, you can scan our culture. What's funny is that the celebrity preacher who goes out for drinks with Kim Kardashian, he has a mental image of who God is. The CEO who gives away half of his income to the poor, maybe the local church, right? They have a mental image of who God is. The struggling mom who believes that if I don't parent well, I'm not a good person. She has a mental image of who God is. The country star who thanks God for their Grammy Award about one night stands. <laughs> they have a mental image of who God is, right? The NFL star who does terrible things you would never want your kids to do. And then at the end of the Super Bowl, thank God for this gift, this incredible gift he's given me, right? They all have mental images of who God is. How do you see God? How do you perceive him? And that probably has been nurtured into you a little bit, depending on your background, but maybe you're very fresh to all of this and, and you're working through, what is my mental image of God? Can I give you mine? 
my mental image of God for so much of my life was that he was a divine boss. He had a clipboard, and he was sitting there waiting, John mess up today or not, naughty or nice, right? He was kind of a, a nicer version of Santa Claus. He was sitting there and saying, there's grace, but did John do this or not? Check. How was John's Monday? Check. John lied? Check. John didn't go to church. He slept in? Check. John attended Bedside Baptist and watched online for three months, all right? Like, check. Like, I, I, that's how I view God, a divine boss who could hire and fire who paid me when I was good, who paid me when I showed up, and then withheld from me when I wasn't around. That was what I viewed God like. And some of you have that exact same mental image to this day. It's just a divine boss sitting there watching me in my behavior. Some of you view God like a coach. Like, God, you are not my king, but you can be my coach. Like, I'll show up to practice. You get to tell me what to do in practice, but when I leave practice, you don't get to tell me what to do anymore. You just kind of get to inform me. But if I want to act on your wisdom, that's my choice still. But you don't get to define my life, my sex, my identity, my purpose or calling, my dreams for my future. He's a coach. Some of us view God like an unfaithful spouse, someone who has hurt us and someone who is supposed to be there for us and to love us and protect and defend us and then ended up leaving us for someone else. And our mental image of God is defined that way. You can go through a list. You probably have your own, right? Maybe he's a judge or a spiritual vending machine or uh, or a wisdom guru or a buddy who's like, yes, to every single idea and thing you want to do. He's just like, you can do whatever you want. He's just a divine pal. But this really does transform Sunday if Psalm 100 is true. If the reality defined in Psalm 100 can be true of us, that how you see God changes how you worship him, and that was true for Israel, this transforms how you show up on a Sunday morning. And I get it. Like For me, the grand tension is that my preferences tend to dictate my worship, not my view of God. I tend to make decisions, and I'm just pulling back the veil here. This is Pastor 101, right? I'm getting totally vulnerable with you. There'll be moments where I'm like, that's the first song? I don't really like that song that much. I don't really want to sing till like three songs in. Maybe once I'm like warmed up and in it, I'll then, then I'll engage, then I'll get into it. Or, or if, man, that sermon was so bad and I preached it, right? Or there's someone else who's like, yeah, that could have been better. Like, I, I'm not going to really take what they said to heart. Or I'm not going to go back and read that scripture because the sermon was just okay. Like, I, I tend to dictate, or it's too hot in the room, it's too cold in the room. I can't see the screen, or I can see the screen, or there's cameras, or there's not cameras, or there's not, a, uh, someone took my seat, or someone didn't take my seat, right? It's just, there's so many preferences that tend to dictate my worship, but Psalm 100 says those don't matter. They don't matter. It's not that you can't have preferences, or that there's things that are in my comfort zone, or we should be totally irrelevant to the culture around us, but the, what Israelites understood, if God is our creator, he is inherently worthy of our worship. And we should come before him, right, with, with joyful songs, with gratitude, with praise. And I'm not going to be the guy to say, well, if you cheer at a football stadium, you should be able to go crazy in church. Like, why can't you do that? Because I think that has the, the reverse effect of what it probably is intended for. But what I am inviting you to say is, what is my view of God? Because how you see God will change how you worship him, how you approach this gathering that we're in right now. You change the mentality from what can I get when I show up on a Sunday to what can I give? What can I contribute? What, what, instead of consume, what can I contribute? What, 
what kind of worship is God worthy of? And if you really got into the answer, it'd be complete, total. I mean, unhindered, doesn't matter if you're introverted or extroverted, he would deserve everything you have, whether that's you standing here quietly or it's you fully engaging, arms up, dancing around the room. I mean, that hasn't happened recently, but if you're feeling that, you can go for it now. Like, probably not in a gym because that would have been a safety hazard, but maybe safer in here. I don't know. But, but instead of allowing preferences, we allow our view of God to define how we worship. And I thought it would be interesting to just give you, to really, again, go one step further with this, to, to show you a list of songs, worship songs we sing that I hate. All right, so what I want to do, I'm going to show, here we go. Like, we're going to walk through this song by song. So if we can throw that up there. So I'm going to give you one. All right, so number one, here's a song I absolutely hate. I'm kidding. We're not doing this. Like, I, I, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing it. I mean, you can ask me later, and I may lie to you, but I'm not going to tell you what they are. I, I actually do think, um, this is a great moment to pause and say, I do think, I mean, our, our worship and tech team have taken worship to the next level here. I really believe that. I have sensed just God moving in a unique way. The last couple of Sundays specifically, like I've just got chills sometimes. Just some of the words we're singing and the power of our voices coming together and uniting around what we believe God is, who we believe he is, his character, the truth. Because how you see God changes how you worship him. If you believe this gathering matters, you will fully engage every time you show up at 10 a.m. And if what we believe is true in Psalm 100 for the Israelite people, Psalm 100 is not like, oh yeah, we should do that one day a week. Psalm 100 was a, a reminder that worship is the life you live. It is not a bunch of songs that you sing. Now, now the songs we sing, the gathering today, is an outflow and an expression of the worship you've lived all week. So, but your worship service does not start at 10 a.m. Center's worship service does not start at 10 a.m. It starts Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. It is a weekly practice for us. When we gather together, it's an outflow. It's an expression of all of the powerful things God has done in our worship through the week. And what I want to do is rapid fire through the psalm because there's actually six commands. Six commands that the psalmist gives us. If you're looking to say, okay, where, where is it for me? Where's the thing that, that I need to grow in or I need to understand about, some, about God and who he is? And we're just going to work through these and try to do it as quickly as possible. So if you have your Bible, I want you to track along and maybe even take some notes so you can reflect later. Psalm 100 starts out with this phrase, shout for joy to the Lord. Anyone confused about the word shout? Didn't think so, especially if you have little kids. They're really pros at that somehow. Uh, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Have you ever noticed it's really hard to shout and be disengaged? <laughs> Have you thought about it? I mean, that would be the most inauthentic, cheesy, weird thing if we were all singing super quietly because it would mean we're not engaged. Or if we tried to shout together and shout for joy to, all, to the Lord, all the earth, and at the same time our mind was disconnected or our heart was disconnected, you just can't do it. Like when I'm at a sporting event and I'm shouting, it's because I'm fully in. Like I'm all in, I'm fully engaged. When I am yelling at my brothers for doing something stupid, my whole heart is engaged in the moment, right? And, and so for me, shouting is, is kind of a key, very beginning of this psalm, to, to let yourself be fully engaged. That may not mean you walk in to the worship service yelling and hooping and hollering if it's not authentic to you. 
Because there is an order. There is a pattern to what we're doing. But what would a fully engaged you look like next Sunday morning? What would it feel like? What, what Will the tone of your voice change? Would your physical expression change? Because the very next thing that the psalmist commands Israel to do is to worship the Lord with gladness. Gladness. A, a deep happiness. Not, not a circumstantial happiness. Not a happiness that, that doesn't look at the real problems and pain of life. But a happiness that understands that this life isn't all there is. That there's more. And to come before him, to worship him with gladness. Worship in all of scripture, the primary definition of worship is not music, it's not songs, it's not preaching. It's actually this unique blend of celebration and service tied together. It's the ability to worship not only through songs we sing and we celebrate together, but actually serving. Can I just say, if you're not serving regularly, your worship is incomplete. You haven't fully understood what worship is. And I haven't, if that's me, I have not fully understood what worship is according to Psalm 100, which is why it's so powerful that the very next thing the psalmist instructs us as followers of God to do is to come before him with joyful songs. If you're an Israelite person, can I just tell you, you'd be reading this and you'd be like, hold, hold, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. What did you just say? Come before him with what? Joyful songs? With a smile on my face? I mean, don't you know that my crops are dying? Don't you know that my cattle are dead? Don't you know that I just lost my spouse? Don't you just know? Don't you, do you understand how hard life can be? And the psalmist writes, come before him with joyful songs. Why? Because joy is not based on a circumstance. It's based on the very character of the one who you are worshiping. God himself, who can be trusted who, who always offers hope, who always is, is able to show you how faithful he is. But if you're reading this as an Israelite, you'd be, you'd be thinking about all the other nations around you who do, they worship their gods. And people in your life, they worship their idols faithfully. They may not know what they are. They may look like sports, their job, their kids, but they're worshiping something. And Israel would look around and say, they'd say, wow, other nations were worshiping. They were faithful. They were sacrificial. They were fully engaged. They were probably shouting as well. But God was saying, I'm not like that. All those other gods condemn, threaten, rebuke. If you do not serve me, I will crush you. But our God is gracious and compassionate and faithful. That's our God. So we can come before him with joyful songs. The first image that comes to my mind when I read this verse is Bugs Life. I don't know if you remember this, like the old Pixar movie Bugs Life. I'm not, I'm not playing around here. This is literally written in my notes. It was like, just, I took away from it. I was like, I remember Bugs Life. This is, this is Bugs Life happening right here because there's this incredible kind of dichotomy happening in Bugs Life. I remember we used to live in North Dakota and my sister was a couple years old when this movie came out, came out and she was literally obsessed with Bugs Life. It was the only thing that would calm her down. Like some of you have yoga balls, you bounce your baby. It was like, put Jordan in front of Bugs Life and she'll be totally fine for at least an hour and 34 minutes. And so we were traveling from North Dakota to my grandparents' house in Mississippi. That's what you call a long drive. It was a long drive. And I remember we had this really crappy, small, portable TV that had a DVD or maybe it was a VHS player connected to it somehow. And I remember my mom said, okay, boys, you guys can do whatever you want in the backseat of the van. We are watching Bugs Life the entire trip. 
And I was like, what? Are you serious? And so I literally have the majority of the movie basically memorized right now. But the first picture that comes to mind, if you're an other nation and, and talking about the difference between God and their gods, is Hopper. It's, it's the big grasshopper in the movie. Because if you remember the dynamics there, it was, it was this grasshopper saying, you have to serve me or I will let you get crushed. I will destroy you. You better keep offering to me and keep bringing the, all the things you collect during the week or I'm going to wipe out your family and wipe out your kids. Every other, every other nation, every other God in Israel's context, that's how they would have operated. But God is saying, you can come before me with joyful songs. I know you. I've created you. I'm for you. I've, I've baked into you dignity and value and identity. You can come before me with joyful songs. Verse 3, we're going to keep going. Verse 3 is what, to me, one that really some of us need to grab, on, grab onto. Verse 3, the, the psalmist writes, you need to know that the Lord is God. Can I tell you, often in my relationship with God, this is not true for all of you, but it's true for some of us, that God often works through new ideas, new thoughts, new concepts, books, or podcasts, and that's often how I hear God's voice. For some of you, that's true for you. There's an intellectual connection you have with God, and that's what I love about what Psalm 100 is saying. God, God does not say, hey, you can worship me with emotion, joyful songs, shouting, but just check your intellect at the door. We don't really need that in here. He's saying, bring your doubts. Bring your questions. Bring your skepticism, bring your pain, bring your, bring your agnosticism to me, and let me show you the kind of God I am. That's why verse 4 is also powerful, because right after that, the, the psalmist commands the reader to enter his gates, enter God's house with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. There's a right way to show up to church, and clearly there's a wrong way. There, there is a the pattern, there's a process, and it doesn't matter if, if life is good or not, that there is a posture of gratitude God's people have when they, when they rightly view who he is and what he has done. How you see God changes how you worship him, and that's why he ends the commands with give thanks to him and praise his name. Where the rubber meets the road on this is actually not just on Sunday morning. It's actually in the rest of your life. It's actually Monday through Saturday when, when everything gets pressed in on you, when you've got the pressures of your work, of, of finances, of physical diagnosis, of, of parenting issues, of kids that have ran away from faith. It's in those moments where this really matters. I remember sitting with a counselor a couple of years ago. It's like end of 2019. I was sitting with him, and he was incredibly gracious, but he asked a powerful question. I've shared this story with some of you, that every good counselor asks, why are you here? <laughs> why are you here? And he just shut up and let me talk. And the thing that really bubbled out of that, and I said, I'm not really sure why I'm here, but we just kept talking. He's like, yeah, but why do you think you're here? All of that bubbled up into, basically, I said, you know what? I, if I'm honest, I am living with just kind of a low-grade disappointment with God. I'm not sure why. I just feel disappointed by him. I, I don't know if it's the circumstances of life, if it's a relationship that went bad, or maybe I read something that kind of threw me off. I'm not sure. I just, I feel disappointed with God. And so over the next couple months, we took this journey, this counseling journey of just unpacking my childhood and church experience, all these different things. And just saying, why do you think that is? Like, keep asking the question, why, 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 why? I get through the end of that process. 
And we're praying together, and he says, you know what? I want, I want you to, to, to journal some of this stuff. And one of the things I journaled was, was uh, Greg saying, uh, my counselor saying, you're not disappointed with God. John, you're disappointed with your view of God. And that hit me like a, tra- a truck in first grade. <laughs> I, I could not run away from that. So you're not disappointed with who God is. You're disappointed with your warped view of who God is. If, you, if you're willing to do the work to get that right, to, to allow God to reveal himself to you, to, to remind you that you are fearfully, wonderfully made, and you relate to him not as a God's employee but as his child, John, your life's going to be different. To be honest, I didn't believe him until I started trying to do that. And over the last year or so, year plus, I've just been on the journey over and over again saying, God, just show me who you are. I want to I know the real you. I don't want to know the you that I think you are. I don't want to know the you that, that Byron Center Christianity says you are. I don't want to know the you that maybe I grew up thinking you are. Like, I, I need to lay down that view, those views and say, God, will you just show me? Honestly reveal yourself to me. And some of you, that's true. You're not disappointed with God. You're not angry at God. You're mad at your view of God. That, that may not reflect anything in this book. It may not reflect anything that, that we see in the person and the power of Jesus. So the question I want to ask this summer, when, when everyone else probably spiritually checks out, I'm going to invite you to do the opposite. I'm going to ask you to, to wrestle with the question, what view do you need to lay down? What view maybe you grew up with, maybe a leader or an influencer in your life, what view do you just say, I don't know if this lines up with who God really is, and just to lay it down. Because Psalm 100 is not just about worship and songs, it's about knowing who God really is, because how you see God changes how you worship Him. It changes how you show up. It changes how you interact with your relationships and your boss and your friends. The second question is, what view do you need to take up? There may be things that you're not willing to believe about God that are actually still true, that he is a loving father to you. Your father was not a loving father. You have a loving father, that he is gracious and compassionate, that he's not standing with a clipboard waiting for you to perfect yourself before he moves in your life. He's just saying, will you just bring all that to me? Will you just show up? Will you just keep showing up? Will you do the work to let me into your life and to reform and reshape your view of me? What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that your faithfulness continues through all generations. That despite our family history, despite our relationships now, despite our church experience, despite our questions, our doubts, you just invite us, bring all that to me. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to have every single answer neatly tied up to, to connect with your Father. And I thank you that today, in this room, online, wherever we're experiencing this right now, you are in the business of taking our view of you and giving us clarity. Redefining for us who God really is. And I thank you for the incredibly clear picture you give to us in Jesus. 
that you have always been the character we see in Jesus. You have always been the the devotion to humanity we see in Jesus. You've always been the sacrificial creator God who knows and loves yet lays down his life for us that we see in Jesus. You've always been that. So I pray, God, that you'd help for some of us to lay down our wrong, backwards, warped view of who you are and instead to take up your easy yoke, to take up your own definition of who you are and to worship you fully as a response to that clarity. Jesus, I I need you to keep doing that in me. I need you to keep doing that for my friends and my family. And I ask today, God, would you do that for us as Center Church? Would you give us a clear picture of who you are and that worship and praise and gratitude and joy would flow out of this place as a result. We love you, and we surrender that process to you. In Jesus' name.